Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. If you have gone to visit Philadelphia, there is a really good chance that you've gone to the Philadelphia Museum of Art stared up at its long stairwell to the front door and taken off running to the top where you have victoriously thrust your fist in the air and began singing the theme song to Rocky. There used to be a statue of the Rocky character right there at the top. Now it lives in a little plaza at the bottom of the steps. And millions of people a year come to pose with this monument. But of course, it's not a monument. Not really. It's a movie prop. Or that's all it was originally supposed to be, at least. But after years and years of locals and tourists alike gathering at the feet of Sylvester Stallone's likeness, The line between fiction and reality, prop and monument, it's gotten blurry. Actually, a couple of the younger people on our own team thought the whole Rocky story was about a real person. And you know, the thing is, the grit of the Rocky character was modeled, at least in part, on a real Philadelphia boxer. A real human being who does not have a world-famous monument and whose story is not remembered in the same way as this fictional character. Paul Farber got curious about this odd set of facts in his hometown, and he's made a whole podcast exploring how these transfigurations happened and what they tell us about monuments. The podcast is called The Statue, produced by our friends over at Philadelphia's public radio station, WHYY. Paul is the co-founder of an organization called Monument Lab, which facilitates conversations about the past, present, and future of monuments in our communities. He's also got a long relationship with our own executive producer, Andre Robert Lee, who is a Philly native. Andre was a mentor for Paul way back in grade school, and he shows up in Paul's podcast. So I talked to them both about this story. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Hey, Paul. Hi, Andre. <laughs> how you doing? So, Andre and Paul, you guys go way back. Um, how do you guys know each other? Paul was in lower school, and I had an after-school job working at the after-school program. And he was a six-year-old with a big personality, was organizing everything and running the show. <laughs> six years old. you remember, Andre, from when you were six years old, Paul? I do. And, you know, I got to reconnect with Andre um, several decades later. And he's been uh, a great mentor and friend, a friend-tor ever since. <laughs> friend-tor, all right. Uh, Paul, you are the monuments guy in this conversation. It's your life work. What drew you into this field in the first place? Um, I, I have to say it was really some experiences I had going to Berlin for the first time. Um, I'm Jewish oh. and queer um, and didn't grow up really 
being told to think about my legacy in, in Germany and Berlin, that it was a traumatized space. And I really felt more comfortable being Jewish in Berlin than I did um, when I was a student traveling in almost any other space in Europe. And it was encountering monuments and memorials that were big as a city block and others as small as a cobblestone. Like It was seeing the range and just this feeling of, yes, there is a profound amount of trauma and pain, but there was also a lot of joy and release and catharsis by not having to kind of push the story under the rug. Like the scars of the city of Berlin lived on the surface. And it made me think about what would it take to feel that same way about my hometown or about American cities. And that really kind of kicked off my interest in what would become Monument Lab. As you talk, Paul, you know, we have a history and I'm remembering you calling me from Berlin or calling me from some dark castle <laughs> as you're working your dissertation. What, well, how did you get to the Rocky statue? You know, I credit my mom is the person who, when I when she asked me a few years ago, I was, I was teaching a class on uh, monuments and memory and mapping. And she said, oh, you're going to talk about the Rocky statue, right? And I kind of looked at her with a, a certain look, and she looked right back at me. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I really credit her. She's a lifelong Philadelphian, a retired um, temple professor. And she said, like, there's something there. People line up every day, no matter the weather, no matter the time, um, to take a picture with Rocky. And as we found out, um, over 4 million people visit the Rocky statue each year. That's Statue of Liberty numbers. Wow, yeah. And so just with that pull in, I realized that, you know, I had to... Um, as we say in the series, The Statue, I had to get off my high horse and really understand and meet people where they were. And it, it kind of pulled me in to think about maybe there's something that we can decode about monuments more broadly by looking at this statue to the most famous Philadelphian who never lived. Andre, what about you? I mean, what was your relationship to this statue? Um, so again, it's a movie mm-hmm, prop, mm-hmm, actually, mm-hmm. Um, that has become a mm-hmm. monument. Um, Andre, as somebody who grew up there, what was your own relationship to Yeah, it? you know, I was just thinking about, like, the series of Rocky movies. Because they felt like Philadelphia movies. And Survivors, uh, Eye of the Tiger, was just like a, a chant in the streets back in the day. And that was Rocky Three, And that's when that song came out. And everybody was dunk. Dunk, dunk, dunk. So I think, you know, I... I didn't grow up going into it or knowing about it. I didn't know about the Philadelphia Museum of Art, where the statue lives. I just heard it. And we, like the little kids in North Philly, were humming the song. And it became a national song. And when you hear it, you feel something. So even though I had never really been to the statue or been to the museum where, the, where that right. statue was held. For me, the Rocky statue was a strange sense of pride in Philadelphia being gritty, being a survivor place, being that we look into the eye of tiger in Philadelphia, we'll just do what we need to do to get by. So it it just, I felt connected to it. You know, I see it in the podcast. We got hoagies, we got pretzels, and we got Rocky. You know, and and I think what I see now from, you know, the perspective of working on this podcast, when I go and, and talk to people at the line, I'll find people from all over Philly, but I'll meet people as I have from Kuwait who come to the statue, from Mumbai, yeah. from Mexico City, from San Diego. In the podcast, we talked to a man who 
fled the Taliban um, and chose Philadelphia because of the Rocky story. And just those moments, it, it put something else into perspective where Rocky is this backdrop of the city, um, but that line between art and life is constantly blurring. And it, it, it made me want to ask more questions about it and, and dig into it. And in digging into it, Paul was reminded that Philadelphia does already have a real-life story of a hometown hero boxer. Except he was Black. Joe Frazier was a real-life heavyweight champion. He lived in Philadelphia. He was born in South Carolina. And he was the first person to knock out Muhammad Ali um, and was a kind of lifelong rival um, with Ali. And he is a really important figure, both in boxing history, I mean, the history of black boxers in Philadelphia. So why doesn't Joe Frazier, like Rocky, have a monument with millions of people coming to visit it every year? Well, that's next. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Smokin' Joe Frazier stepped onto the boxing scene when he fought through an injury in the 1964 Olympics and became the only American fighter to win a gold medal that year. When he went pro, he used his powerful left hook to scrap his way to the world heavyweight title. Now, Muhammad Ali was, of course, the sport's reigning celebrity, but Ali was banned from competing because he refused to go to Vietnam. So Frazier campaigned and petitioned to get Ali reinstated. And when Ali finally came back, the three fights between these two athletes, they were and still are considered some of the greatest in boxing history, which is to say he was Rocky. In the podcast, The Statue, Andre takes Paul to visit Joe Frazier's Philadelphia gym. Have you ever been to this corner and like stood here, been here? I've driven by it yeah. many times, but yeah. I've never stood here. There are weeds growing next door to it in the fence-off area next to the, the, the trains, uh, tracks. Um, it's very Philadelphia in the sense that it's not open, it's not preserved, it's not used, but it's here. And it's strong. We stopped, lost in thought, at what looked like an abandoned building. We're looking up at a pair of boxing gloves across from the sign that says Joe Frazier's Gym. Andre, right under that t- tell us a little bit about where you were in that moment. Yeah, we are, we are in North Philadelphia on Broad Street at Broad and Glenwood. It's a Glenwood section of North Philadelphia. It's the deuce deuce, as many people call the area. It is it's very complicated, beautiful, wonderful, difficult area where I grew up. A lot of lower-income families, primarily Black. And Joe Fraser's gym was this place that 
children were invited to get off the streets and take lessons in boxing and move towards improving life. Joe Frazier opened that up. It was the place where he trained. Then he opened it up because he really saw that there were children who needed an outlet. And it's kind of a sacred land for some people in Philadelphia. Mm. And Joe Frazier was the person who ran up the art museum steps and punched meat carcasses before the character Rocky did. So even though there are a number of boxers that um, Sylvester Stallone drew upon to tell the story of Rocky, Joe Frazier's story is front and center. Joe Frazier has a cameo in Rocky One. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Frazier was supposed to play himself in Rocky Three. Love this fact. All right, the film where the Rocky statue is dedicated, and that was the idea that Stallone had was to have the film Rocky Balboa fight real life Joe Frazier. Um, they went into the ring for an audition, and as Stallone described it, um, he got hit. Um, it felt like a falling piano, and he got stitches, and ultimately <laughs> the plan was was dissolved. And I think, you know, what really struck us when we talk about it in the podcast is, like, the the extraordinary and the ordinary, that when you're at the art museum steps and you see a line of people by the Rocky statue from all walks of life, there's something profound happening there. So that's extraordinary. And at the same time, when you're at Joe Frazier's gym, which is shuttered and just a few miles away, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. see the lack of preservation and acknowledgement of real-life boxers, especially black boxers in the city. And there's a disparity of resources, and that's ordinary Mm -hmm. when it comes to monuments. And how is it that Joe Frazier's gym ended up shuttered and, you know, overgrown with weeds and all of this stuff? You know, from my eyes as a kid walking around, it was hopping, it was busy, and then all of a sudden it was just shuttered. And we didn't quite understand as kids in the neighborhood uh, what happened. Yeah, I mean, what I can tell you is that, you know, the kind of relationship that Frazier had to the gym was very intimate. That he not only trained there, there's iconic photos of Muhammad Ali right outside, but he lived above it. Um, later on in his life, he fell on financial problems and lost the gym. And there were hopes to be able to get it back, to turn it um, either into a gym or to a cultural center. Um, But it slipped outside of the family's hands. Thanks to the work of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and especially people like Brent Legs, the uh, gym got designation on the National Register, which means that it can't be demolished, which is not the case for a number of important sites of Black Mm. history in the city of Philadelphia that doesn't get that status. And at the same time, the developer who owned the building said, well, now I'm going to charge more money for it. So it's really stuck Mm. in limbo between being a beacon of the community um, and its future status, which is yet to be determined. Wow. Wow. I mean... I, I was going to ask you, Paul, do, do you consider it a monument? As a monument specialist, you know, like, is that a monument? But I guess not if it's, I, I don't know. How do I think about that building? Yeah, I mean, a, a monument is in the eye of the beholder. And I think when it comes to both people in Philadelphia and um, to fans around the world, it is. Um, it has the all of the facets of monumental architecture. It has Joe Frazier's name carved into it. But I think the biggest part for me is the role that has played. You know, there is no single definition of a monument in our culture. Um, When you talk about monuments, you are, of course, talking about bronze and marble symbols on high. But 
We also use the word monument to talk about archaeological sites, national parks, you know, ruins, and also those unintentional monuments, a shuttered building. Um, we even talk about monuments as monumental architecture, poetry, protest, projection. Mm. Monument Lab defines a monument as a statement of power and presence in public. You know, while that is really important to note, I just want to say just because you are considered a monument doesn't mean there is an equity. In fact, there's a a gross inequity when it comes to the kind of resources um, that we see, especially the Black cultural sites in this country. And in your work at Monument Lab, how often have you seen examples like what has happened in Philly with Joe Frazier and his gym and the missing story of the city's, you know, actual real-life underdog boxer? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about our National Monument Audit, and there's a few things that that stand out to it for me. One of them is you know, in the top 50 list of people who have monuments dedicated to them, there are more Confederates than Black Americans on that list. Mm. There are three women on that list of the top 50. The most monumentalized woman in this country is Joan of Arc. There are no U.S.-born Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander, or self-identified LGBTQ plus people on that top 50. I also think about another item that we found in the audit, which is um, in our study set, we encountered nearly 6,000 Civil War conventional monuments. One percent of them mention slavery. Wow. The Civil War was fought over slavery, full stop. And when I say mention slavery, I mean that the name of the monument the plaque, or maybe even the record-keeping that's kept behind the scenes. It does not necessarily tell the story of self-emancipated Black folks fighting for their freedom, the long legacies of slavery. It just says the word. That's 1%. We found in Confederate monuments, the word defeat came up only 3% of the time. And I can tell you anecdotally that I see the words like loyal and patriot and statesman. Mm -hmm. And so what we, we came to in this moment was... You know, it can be profound to remove a toxic monument or to build a new one. I've seen it be really catalytic to our community that, especially those that have long been denied the ability to render their heroes and their figures in this um, enduring way. But if we don't deal with the misrepresentations deep down, then we're going to be keeping on in some of the same path that we're on, which is that history is used as a blunt force against those um, who have to fight for justice and fight for belonging. You've been a great mind since you were six years old, Paul. I love it. (laughs) um, I I had good teachers (laughs) from then, including you. (laughs) Paul Farber is the director of Monument Lab and the host of The Statue. You can get wherever you get your podcasts from WHYY. Paul, Thanks for this time. Kai, thank you. Andre, thank you. Thanks, Paul. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. And of course, you can always talk to us by going straight to notesfromamerica.org and looking for the little record button. Theme music and mixing by Jared Paul. Milton Ruiz was our live engineer this week. 
Reporting, editing, and producing by Karen Froman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for hanging out. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.